There we go. We're back. We're, we're back. I, I didn't know they hadn't switched this over. So that name is actually Habakkuk. And, you know, we should probably, I, I hope that this message is so good and that what is in the scriptures enriches your lives to the point that we suddenly start having grandkids and children that are born in our church named after this. You know, I think it would be wonderful if the outflow of this sermon is that everybody just said, wow, Habakkuk, that is a name. You know, we have John and we have James and we have Peter. We have all these names from the New Testament, but nobody dives into those Old Testament names. There's a reason for that, isn't there? It just kind of sounds funny. When we were naming our daughter, our oldest daughter, I really, I, I became entranced with some of the things in the Old Testament. Uh, there's these books called Wisdom Literature, and uh, I really wanted to name my daughter after that concept of wisdom. And Sophia, Sophia, our oldest daughter, her name means wisdom. That's actually true, but it's a Greek word. And the reason why is because when I looked up the, the Hebrew word for, for wisdom, it was chokmah. And I said, Shelby, we could call her that. And Shelby said, you know, we'll be spitting on people. Every time we say our daughter's name, it won't actually work out. So the joys of the Old Testament, I'm really glad you guys have uh, stuck with me through this. We love the Old Testament at Parker Ford Church. At least some of us do. And uh, we are, we're going we're gonna to dive in. Now, you know, what I notice about our God that's really interesting, um, that's different than us, is that especially when I study the life of Jesus, there's this kind of understanding that Jesus doesn't, like religion. Now, if anybody asked, is Jesus a religious figure? We'd all say, yes, right? I mean, there are these world religions and Jesus is at the center of what it means to be a Christian and what happened on the cross is the center of our faith. And so he is by definition a religious figure. But on the other hand, there's this sense in which he didn't like religion very much. And one of the reasons why is I think religion is something that becomes kind of rote. It's, it's, it's a habit, right? We do the same things the same ways over and over again. And I could tell you all the horror stories of churches I've been involved in or watched go up in in difficult situations, have uh, conflict because of religious stuff, agreements in their church that got broken or something where, where people have kind of an understanding of how things are supposed to work. It's always been done that way, they say. And yet some change comes along and then it offends somebody and then they move forward. We could talk about that. But I've got to tell you, as I was looking at this sermon this week, I am a religious guy. I really am. I like things to change as much as anybody, but there's things I do and I think about why I do them and I go, I don't know why I do that. Honestly, that's what religion is, right? When we do something and we do it as though it's kind of connected to God and connected to church, but we don't maybe after a while know why we do it. There's nothing in here. There's just the kind of this is what we do. We get up in the morning and we get ready on Sunday mornings for church. And do we ever really ponder what this is all about inside of our hearts? And I think Jesus actually disliked that lack of focus that goes on, that, that, that losing what's really important. And instead, what he really liked was honesty. You saw Jesus when he was on earth. You can, you can read the Gospels and you can see him gravitate towards people who ask honest questions, even when those questions are offensive. At one point in Mark chapter 9, this guy comes to Jesus, and he's got this son who's demon-possessed, and he says, listen, I need help. This, this, this boy of mine, he's throwing himself in the fire, and I'm trying to save his life even as he's trying to end his life. And we go back and forth in a conflict between me and him over and over again. It's a, it's a difficult situation. Jesus, if you can, would you please heal him? And Jesus says, if I can, if I can. Anything's possible for someone who believes. And then the man utters what I think might be the, I'm not saying this is the best prayer in the Bible, but it's the one that I identify with the most. He says, Lord, I believe. And then there's another line. Do you remember it? Help my unbelief, right? 
That's the most honest prayer I can think of. Because did the guy believe? Well, part of the way. Kind of, yeah. Could Jesus do it? Maybe. I don't know the rules that govern Jesus, says the man. I don't know when you can heal and when you can't. I don't understand this whole thing. What I do know is my boy keeps throwing himself in, pla- in places he shouldn't. He's getting, he's going to be drowned or he's going to be burned or he's going to have something horrible happen to him. And I need your help, Jesus, says this man. And Jesus says, your, your son's going to be healed. And he lets him go at that. That's the honesty that Jesus gravitates toward. I love that picture, don't you? Somebody who's not faking it. If we're honest, we fake it a lot, wouldn't you say? And, you know, one of the places we fake it the most is in prayer. When I was a kid, I remember people prayed, and when they, I, I would see these very normal people. I had one guy in my church. He's a wonderful guy, gigantic man, and he was a tractor mechanic, okay? And I wouldn't dare say this. He actually passed away a couple years ago. I would never say this to Pete's face. If I saw Pete anywhere, he was just too big to ever say this about. But when he prayed, he would go to King James-only language. You know what I mean? And I, I, he had a great relationship with God. I don't mean to make fun of this guy because he was my, like my first grade Sunday school teacher, wonderful man of God. But he just felt this need to go into the kingdom. No, nobody talks in these and thous, right? But thou, O Lord, and he'd lead our first grade Sunday school class in this kind of religious prayer as though God understood. We've got to speak God's native tongue. That's the King James Version of the Bible when we pray, right? It's not actually how it works. But we all have those little bents in our lives, those little kind of we, we, we think we need to act different for God. And frankly, prayer is one of those places where I think easily we become religious. Easily we're people who fake it, who actually act like, okay, I'm going to bring my most pious self to God and I'm going to let all those other selves, you know, what I watch on Friday night in the way of a movie, the way I behave at work, those things are going to be, that's me, this other me. But when I come to God, I've got to bring this religious Josh, to God, you know? And God's going, why don't I have access to the real you? Well, one of the, thing about, one of the things about the prophets is that they were real. And, uh, you know, we, we get real at moments when we go through crisis. You know, the Bible is written, the Old Testament is written around several different crises. The, the first five books of the Bible are written around the slavery in Egypt. A whole bunch of books of the Bible are written around this terrible atrocity that's being committed by the Assyrian invasion in about the 8th century B.C. And there, you, you get Isaiah, Micah, Amos, and last week we talked about Hosea. Those books all come because God's people are in danger, and they start to write. Why do they start to write? Because they're worried, and they're going to God in prayer. And when they go to God in prayer, these prophets discover God all over again, and they write down their findings, and that's how we get our Bible. Now, the the start of that is not that they start writing books in the middle of nothing, though they start because of slavery and because of an invading army and because of different things that come along. And this morning, a hundred years after that story about Hosea, there is this there is this next invading army. It's called the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is going to be writing during that time. And all sorts of biblical writers are writing to us from that time. Jeremiah is writing from that time. Zephaniah is writing that time. Uh, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Lamentations all come from this portion. Daniel was alive during this period. And so when you look at the Bible, it's actually formulated. It's written for moments when people are in crisis because that's when people get honest. There's this verse in the Old Testament. It says that we're supposed to be still and know that I am God. You ever heard that psalm? There's a Dominican priest who wrote this about prayer, and I want you just to kind of look at it with me. This is a, is a, um, a Dominican priest by the name of Simon Tugwell, and he wrote that prayer needs to be something different than we usually think of. He says, God invites us 
to take a holiday. That word be still is translated in Latin by the word vacate. Okay? You actually like walk out of your life and you vacate the premises and you go be someplace else when you pray is the, is the premise behind it. And so God invites us to take a holiday or a vacation, and vacation comes from that word, to stop being God for a while and let him be God. When we pray, we realize that we're not in control. He's in charge. And when we honestly pray, it works much better. He is inviting us to take a break, to play a truant. We can stop doing all those important things we have to do in our capacity as God in order and leave it to him to be God, okay? Prayer is the escape hatch for the average human being who is overstressed, over-intensified, over-focused on all of these other things. And what God is saying is bring your real self to me in prayer. And what we're going to read about in these biblical writers, what we're going to read about in the Old Testament, these prophets, 22 of them throughout the Old Testament, what they're going to bring to us is honesty, over and over and over again. Last week, we, we looked at this chart, and Hosea was, uh, that's where Hosea took place, about 730 B.C. This morning, we're going to be talking about Habakkuk, which is about 100 years later. And here's uh, what we talked about in the way of prophets. Prophets do these two things. They reveal God's word to people, and then on the other hand, they prayerfully lift people up to God. Now, most prophets don't record their prayers for us. Most prophets actually record what they're saying to the people of God for God. They've gone back and they've prayed and they've listened to God, and now they're revealing to everybody else what God thinks about the situation. But Habakkuk is actually going to record the prayer. It's like a a drama. We're going to go back and forth between Habakkuk speaking, and then God's going to speak, and then Habakkuk's going to speak, and then God's going to speak. It's going to go back and forth, back and forth. In the middle of this, it's as though we're watching a conversation between one of God's chosen prayer warriors who's going to be very, very honest. It might make you uncomfortable he's so honest with God about what's going on in his time. And we're going to experience what it means to be a prayer warrior in Habakkuk's time. So without further ado, we're going to jump in. This is Habakkuk chapter 1, and this is what his opening prayer is. Now just listen to it and think, uh, if you could pray this prayer, okay? You might have this conversation around a water cooler where you complain about the same things that Habakkuk's complaining about, but would you honestly pray this prayer, okay? How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict, and it abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. That's his prayer. That's what he goes to God and he says, he says, you know, there are broken people all around me and they are breaking other people. These people have lost sight of who God is. Remember last week and in Deuteronomy, that message, we talked about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And when we do that, we actually have transformed hearts and we're able to love people around us. We're able to love our neighbors as ourselves in the words of Jesus. And what this passage says is these people have lost the love of God and then correspondingly in the generation sense, they've lost the love of the people around them. They're thinking mostly about right and wrong, and the right and wrong is about getting their lives protected. It's not about taking care of the people around them. They're sitting here focused on number one, not focused on two, three, four, and five, and six. You know, in Journey Kids, we talk every now and then about the joy rule. It says it this way, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. And my kids can say that. When I say joy, the Journey Kids all say, that's right, Jesus, others, and you. We have to prioritize our lives. Well, these people's priorities have broken down in in a very profound way. How long, Lord, must I listen to this? May I watch this? Must I experience this, says Habakkuk? I'm tired of the brokenness. 
You know, have you ever looked at the newspaper and thought that's a call to prayer? Have you ever read the headlines on our daily world news and said, you know, I think that I'm supposed to pray, not just for Oklahoma, which is the crisis at the moment, but for the, lo- uh, the most recent murder or for the most recent, the most recent larceny or the most recent difficulty that we experience. Maybe those are calls to prayer. That's what prophet, you, prophet Habakkuk used as the beginnings of what he called his prayer ministry. And when he goes to God, he says, God, how can you even be on the throne? I can't understand how you are on the throne and allowing this to exist. The evidence of the people around me says maybe God isn't any, any longer watching. Maybe he's not aware. Well, you know, sometimes when I pray, I don't get an answer. Honestly, you ever pray and feel like you didn't receive an answer? Everybody has, right? You feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And there are some moments when I've prayed in my life and I've realized that God has answered me and it's a year or two years down the road. But I I, I easily miss the moment because by then I've forgotten and he's still working his amazing story. I have to write those prayers down so I can go back and look. Well, what happens interestingly throughout the book of Habakkuk is it's almost as though God answers too quickly. Habakkuk is answered. And what God brings to the scene Habakkuk is not necessarily blessed by. God replies and he says this, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. You know, in Jeremiah, or Deuteronomy 29 and 30, there's this set of promises given, and, it, and God clearly lays out. He says, listen, if you will do what I tell you, no nation will ever be able to conquer you. Jerusalem, among other cities, will never fall. No one will ever be able to conquer your towns. No one will ever be able to step on your turf. And no matter how big an army they have, it won't be enough because God will be on your side. And he says, but if you don't follow God, There's this whole other thing that will happen. And it will turn the blessings of God into the curses of God. And you will lose the justice. God is a God of justice, right? You will lose the justice of God being on your side, and he will start to be on your adversary's side. There's a great Old Testament prophet by the name of Joel who at one point says, you know, there's this army that's coming, they're coming, and you should look out for them, you should look out for them. And when they get here, they're going to have a giant standard, and you're going to look at that standard, and you're going to wonder, who's the king of this army? You don't even know who's the leader, and it's going to say, God. And he says to the people of Israel, he says, listen, God's not in here. He's actually out there. It's God attacking you. What are your chances if God attacks you? Because you've lost your justice. You've lost your way. You're not pursuing God and you're not loving your neighbor. Well, listen, well, then God will be on the enemy's side. And Habakkuk is not blessed to find this out, right? This is not something that anybody would like to hear about their people. Okay, God, bring justice to our society. Turn back the the, the hands of time and help us to live in a way that used to be lived, the way people used to get along, the way people used to worship God. Turn us back. That's Habakkuk's prayer. And instead he says, no, it's gone too far. These people's hearts have been turned. They're, They're focusing the other direction. They're turned the other way. And they're not listening to me anymore. The best I can do is bring in 
this terrible army. You know, it, it actually happened. In 586 B.C., the third time Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, this foreign Babylonian king, he builds a huge siege ramp and a, and a, and a big t- uh, a ramp that gets up right up to the top of the walls. And they actually burn the temple. You know, the people of God thought there was no way that God would allow his temple to be burned. And we have prophecies from that time period where God says, you know, you think that because I'm in the temple that somehow I won't vacate the temple. If you want to read a really uh, a really sad passage of Scripture, Ezekiel during that time, already taken into captivity, he's a priest who was taken captive earlier, he writes from Babylon. He's actually in Babylon, and God tells him, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. This is it. And it, it has a picturesque storyline of God picking up, and it shows God picking up from the temple and weaving through the streets of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives, and he actually exits Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the very same place Jesus will ascend from almost 600 years later. Interesting story, isn't it? It's very, very sad. If you're looking for a a passage of Scripture that will bring you down, Ezekiel 12, very much a a parallel with, with Habakkuk. These people had gone so far that God was saying, I can't stay in the midst of you. You're kicking me out of your town. You're asking me to leave. And I'm on your opponent's side. I'm on your adversary's side. It breaks my heart. I love you, but I have to go because you're not interested in what I'm doing anymore. This is one of those passages that reminds us of who God really is. He's he's simultaneously the God who loves us and the God who must bring justice. You know, sometimes when I'm praying in Pottstown, I I think, you know, grace has a misnomer. It's a mistaken identity because we think justice isn't part of it. But when you see all sorts of injustice where people who are disadvantaged are taken advantage of by people who have the advantage, well, then you start to believe that justice is important, right? Right? We start to believe that maybe it's the role of God to bring justice to situations. Otherwise, our society breaks down and broken things happen. And so this is God saying, yes, I actually am a God of justice. And even though I love these people, they're hurting themselves and they're hurting each other. And the best thing we can do is start over. It's an amazing story as God starts over with these people. Habakkuk's reply, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my holy one, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure. In fact, you might want to change the tone of that. Just listen. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment? Really? Somehow you think they're more righteous than we are? You, my rock, have ordained them to punish us? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. How can you use the Babylonians if somehow you, uh, if if you're saying we're unjust, they're more unjust than we are? You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Lord, are you not from everlasting, says Habakkuk. You know, sometimes we have this sense of prayer that has to do with us seeing things get fixed, right? And what God is calling Habakkuk to is actually watch him in the middle of a, a situation that's not fixable, at least in the near term. This situation is so broken that God's saying the most redemptive thing I can do, the thing that's most in keeping with the cross of Jesus, most in keeping with his mercy, is to say this culture is destroying itself. I need to start it over. I'm going to take them all into exile, and I'll bring them back eventually, and they'll be changed when they come back, and their hearts will be given to me in a new way. But it's going to take some doing, and it's going to take decades, not just a a one- or two-year hiatus. They're actually going to have to be reformed because I've got to start at the very beginning roots of their culture. You know, sometimes when I study world history, I think this is what God does a lot, right? 
You know, there have always been great nations, and those great nations have gone through, through moments of, of, of great economic prosperity, and then they've kind of fallen off in their morality, and then it kind of tails off on the other end. We could talk about Greece. We could talk about the Persians. We could talk about Rome. We could talk about any number of empires that have existed across the world history. Or we could talk about the, talk about the United States today. And we could hear in this storyline the fact that we exist in the middle of very much the same type of situation that Habakkuk is in, right? I'm not here to blast our culture, but I am here to say that God is a God of justice and it's not as though he's turning a blind eye to our day. And if we start to pray out and say, Lord, what are all these things that we're in the midst of? Why is there so much immorality? Why is there so much darkness around us? If these things grieve our heart, we might find that God is very much already saying the same things. His heart is broken just like Habakkuk's heart, just like Hosea's heart was broken last week. And he's saying, I don't know what else to do but to seek the best of this people through what is a difficult process. I'm going to take them through a deconstruction process so they can be reconstructed. Remember last week we talked about these monks who believed in the medieval period especially that there is this sense that we have to go through consolation periods, which are wonderful. But there's also this desolation that precedes it sometimes. God has to deconstruct us in order to reconstruct us. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to tear you down so I can raise you up. And individual human lives go through this, and so do human cultures. And Habakkuk says, I am told by God that my culture has crossed the line. And it's not just a God who's wanting to smash them and break them. He's actually saying, I'm going to rebuild them. Jeremiah recounts this beautifully. He says, I'm going to tear down and, and, and uproot and do all of these horrible things, but then I'm going to rebuild and I'm going to restore, and this is going to be a great nation. This is what the prophets of the Old Testament say back and forth. They go from the darkness to the light, back and forth, back and forth, showing God's justice and his mercy as both a part of his grace. And in the midst of this, Habakkuk is saying, Lord, really, you're going to use the Babylonians to do this? And God says, yes, I'm going to. There's this final line that Habakkuk uses in this prayer. I skipped over some of it because it's just too lengthy for us this morning. But he ends with this line, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. I love this picture. If you turn to Isaiah 62, 6, you can read one very similar to it. In fact, I'll just turn there real quickly and read what we find there. It's about a watchman. It's not as though Habakkuk is actually on a wall. Isaiah 62 has this, this passage, which just, if you're a prayer warrior, if you're somebody who's called to prayer, and I believe we all are in one shape or form or other, this is a line that reminds us of what prayer really looks like. And Isaiah writes, I have posted watchmen on your walls of Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. He says, don't even take a break, but continue to beg God to change the city in which you live and give him no rest. Don't let God rest either. So you don't sleep and you don't let God sleep. Bug God. You know, Jesus told this story about a a widow who was treated unjustly and she keeps going to this unjust judge over and over and over again until he gives in to her complaint. Do you remember that story? It's as though Isaiah downloaded that before it was even written. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. You know, when Habakkuk looked at his city, he he realized that people weren't praising God because of what was going on in Jerusalem. And, you know, when I watch Pottstown or the the surrounding region, I'm not sure God is being praised because of what's happening in our region yet, right? 
We would love for people to see what's going on in our world and say, you know, this is evidence that there is a God. But frankly, it sometimes look like, looks like the opposite. And so what this passage says is God has called these prayer people to sit on a, on a, on a wall. And I think it's a virtual wall, not a real wall, okay? This is not the literal wall of Jerusalem. Sometimes you see artworks with Habakkuk on the wall praying out his prayers. But actually, I suspect this is a prayer closet. And the wall he's talking about is the metaphorical wall of protection that God had built around his people. Okay, it's always been there. The city's never been conquered. And Habakkuk's saying, okay, I'm going to sit on my prayer wall. I'm going to sit before God and before these people, and I'm going to beg God. I'm going to find out what he's going to do. We're going to continue to pray because the only way to live through a time like this is to actually walk it out in relationship and in conversation with our God. And I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to be quiet, and I'm going to watch. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. It's not as though he's just waiting for the Babylonians to arrive. It's as though he's waiting for God to continue to work out his plan. And he's watching and he's getting himself in alignment with God and he's catching on that God wants to do great things. God replies one more time and it says this, See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. The the enemy is puffed up. Who's the enemy? You know, we're not quite sure anymore who the enemy is. The, the storyline has lost its, its picturesque nature or specific nature as to who the enemy is. It might be the Babylonians, this terrible army that's coming, but it also might be the people of God who have become enemies to God, enemies of God. And so, in other words, these enemies, they are puffed up. Their desires are not upright. And God goes on on what is just a tremendous rant, saying the righteous person will live by their faith, but all these other people are going to be broken as they live by something less. We're going to talk about that last line in a little bit. But before I do, I want to show you what Habakkuk says, or what God says to Habakkuk about why they've turned, what has gone wrong with their culture, okay? So just listen to what's gone wrong with their culture and see if you can identify with it. There's five things, and they're all, they're all laid out. I'm not going to read it for you, but they're all laid out with the word woe in front of it. Now, woe is a word that you would use in a Jewish funeral, okay? In other words, this is a funeral dirge for the culture that Habakkuk's a part of. And God is saying, listen, there are such broken things in your world that you are destroying yourselves, and this is the end. So let's use funeral language about it, and here's why. Here's what's dying. Here's your particular sickness. The first one is money. Now, is money a good thing? We have some bankers in our church. You know, are they just absolutely sinners just for working at a bank? No, no. Money's an important commodity in our society. We all need money. You need money to buy anything, you know. I go to the grocery store and I get Cheerios for my kids. They don't want to just see my good looks. We have to have money. So there's nothing wrong with money. But what there is wrong with money is when we look at it as the end all. And we we line everything up. And Habakkuk says the people of God, and God actually is speaking through the prophet at this point. He says the people of God have gotten to the point where they're accumulating money, financially building, and never thinking about their neighbor. Just deciding that it's up to them to raise as much funds as they possibly can. And if you work hard, you are entitled to everything that you get. And actually the scriptural storyline is exactly opposite to that. When we get finances, it's because God gives them. And then they're, they're to be there for the good of not just yourself, for other people. There are people who have a tremendous gift as far as making money. And there are others who frankly do not. And they have other sets of gifts and they need money as well. And so I'm not just speaking out some sort of socialist, communist kind of perspective here. But there is this idea that the finances of what God is about has to do with sharing. 
has to do with looking at the community as a whole, has to look at who's in need and looking beyond ourselves and thinking, it's not just about me. It's actually about all those other people as well. And if the only person that's it's doing well in this world is you, then there's something wrong. If it's just a select few people who have all the finances, then something has gone wrong in this culture. And that's what happened in Habakkuk's day. These people were willing to hurt other people, to charge exorbitant amounts of interest, to go through different sorts of situations governmentally where they ensured that they would be wealthy people. And Habakkuk says that is sin and woe to it because it's eating your culture. And what's more is those people who you take advantage of, they're going to come back and hurt you. That's what Habakkuk says. It goes on and he says, the second thing is security. We all want security, right? I want to know my kids are taken care of. I want to know my family is provided for. Habakkuk gives this picture of a house that's built up on a mountain. He says, you build these houses way up above all of the fray, all of the difficulty around you. You're going through this crisis in your culture, but you build yourself above it. And you say, I'm going to survive in the midst of it. And he says, but you're forgetting that all those other people are not secure. And you're promoting your own interests while not promoting the interests of others. You're actually, in a sort of way, taking advantage of other human beings in order to get what is a good thing. Instead of entrusting God for the finances and entrusting God for the security, you've started to think your money pays for you to have security and your money pays for you to have all those things that you want to have. Now, about this time, I start to get a little convicted, you know? I remember in our last church, the, the pastor had this moment where he said, had us all stand up and he said, if you, we all stood up. He didn't say you should all stand up. He said, if you have two shirts, please stand up. And everybody in our church stood up. Everybody in the church had two shirts. Nobody in our congregation didn't have two shirts. And he said, you know that about 30% of the world doesn't have two shirts. You're actually richer than the, the 30% of the culture of the world that's, that's lower income than you, that don't even have these two shirts that you have. I thought about that. I had two shirts, three shirts. I, don't, I, I honestly couldn't tell you how many shirts I have. Could you? We live in our world as though we are entitled to certain privileges. We become uh, thoughtful that we are the people who are deserving of what we have. <clears throat> and that's not coming from a thankful heart anymore. And we have this problem with God in the midst of that where we think, well, somehow we are entitled to these things and those other people, then they're left out. It's a system that takes advantage of other people. It's difficult, and what Habakkuk is saying is indicting. It goes on. He says, justice. Justice is a problem in your culture. We like justice. We need justice. Justice is important. But he said these people developed rules that made sure the rich got richer and the poor stayed poorer. And he said, that's wrong, too. Goes on one step more and says, your culture is all about fun. He actually gives this great picture. He says, you invite people over to your house and you get them drunk and then you laugh at them. You know, Habakkuk's really honest, right? You can hear this sort of honesty. It's just normal stuff. You have people over for Memorial Day, they get drunk at your house, and then you're going, this is really funny. I mean, look at that guy. Did you see him with the lampshade on his head last night? You know, if he was in our day, you would have seen this guy on YouTube right then, you know, just taking a picture, and there he is. You know, all of his friends saw so-and-so drunk and having a good time. Well, Well, Habakkuk says, that's not of God. When you actually have fun at the expense of other people, it's never of God. And then he slips in this last line, and it's really indicting. It's the most indicting line. It it goes to something. All of those first four things are fine, right? Money, security, justice, and fun. We need those things. We like those things. We have a good time in in our culture, and that's okay. God is saying, do that, but don't take advantage of other people. But then he says, it all stems from idolatry. 
You know, in Hebrews chapter 3, it says that we're to uh, get rid of the sin in our lives so we can stay focused on Jesus. It doesn't say focus on Jesus so you get rid of the sin in your life. It says get rid of the sin in your life because you'll lose sight of who God is if you have sin in your life. It's, to me, it was a scary thought reading that this week, that when I sin, I all of a sudden start to form idols. You know, the way this actually works is when we put money in a wrong place in our life for security or justice or fun or any of these things that we can kind of misplace God and put them in his place, what actually happens is we develop a pseudo-God. We develop a God who's different than the one true God. The people of Jesus' day did this all over the place. They developed these rules about God. And instead of having the one true God, they said it was, it was the one true God. They used his name, but it was actually a different God altogether as they reshaped him in an image that allowed them to live life the way they wanted to live him. And he said, you know, these, these four things, which are such good things, become bad things when you do them in order to take advantage of other people. And when you do that, you lose sight of ever wanting to follow God. You can't even hear him when he talks. And so you start to worship created things instead of the creator, says Habakkuk. And he says, I'm listening on the wall, and this is what God is replying. This is what I'm hearing in my prayer time with the Lord, that our culture has these broken things. You know, what a blessing to have a man who's so interested in walking and hearing from God that the things that are wrong with this culture come out in such specifics. Isn't this kind of interesting? And then there's a, there's a, a final word on all of this, and you'll remember this. God ends with this line, his, his diatribe, his indictment of the people of Habakkuk's day ends with this line, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In other words, all of this sin is noisy and confusing. All of this is distra- We can't even tell when we're really taking advantage of another people. Is it okay that we buy this thing or is it maybe not? We sit at the store and we wonder. We don't know where our heart is at. We don't know what's really right and wrong. We've lost our way to the point that it's just a cacophonous noisiness all around us. And yet the only way back is to sit where Habakkuk's sitting, right? The book of Habakkuk has two great lines that are just worth hearing again and again. The first is that the just shall live by faith. And that means the just, the righteous person is going to live in a conversation with God where they believe what God says and they're hearing it. You know, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We do not see God, but then we're in a conversation with God and he starts to explore our lives with us. I want to tell you something about our pastors. We're not that great. You know, you you guys, maybe not you specifically, but people like you, call us. They call me. I I know this, and it's so frightening they do. They say, how do we raise godly children? And I, I just want to tell you something. I don't know. How do you have a good marriage? I don't know. How do you get through the financial crisis you're in the midst of? I don't know. I can I can honestly look at some biblical principles. I can tell you what the scriptures say. But, you know, when it comes down to what is really all about pastoral care, what God is really trying to do in our church, what he's trying to do is we get together in moments when people have crises like that. How do we raise God the kids? I don't know. We're going to get with God and we're going to ask him, Lord, this kid is a specific child. He's a unique or she's a unique creation. You created her or him in his mother's womb and you knew what this person was going to be. They take different parenting than any other kid on this planet. They need a specific sort of parent. How do you know how to do that? You know how you find out? You walk in faith, right? You don't walk up to your pastors and say, somehow turn my frog into a prince. It will not happen. I've only raised a nine-year-old so far, and I have questions about her. 
Honestly, your pastors are not that great. In fact, all of the people giving advice in our world, go to the self-help aisle at Borders or whatever bookstore you... That, that advice is not that great. It's not specific to your situation. You might be in a mess. And what, believe me, Habakkuk was in a mess. And what he says is the just shall live by faith. And what's more is we have to find ourselves in the stillness of God's holy temple where he alone reigns supreme. And we sit in this quietness in a faith-filled relationship with him and we start to ask him questions. And we might be surprised by the answers, but in the end, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I love this picture of what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that there's a set list of rules that we're all supposed to walk out. It it means that there's no shortcut where we can easily just get there if we just live life the way we're supposed to. And It means something that's far beyond all that. It means that we're supposed to walk in a wisdom that can only happen through conversation with God, connection, relationship. It's not about religion. It's about honest relationship. And we only get there by being honest in our prayers. There's a few things I noticed about Habakkuk as a prayer warrior, and I just want to kind of bring those into your light. These are the postures of a prayer warrior. The postures of a prayer warrior. And the first one is that throughout the midst of this, Habakkuk maintained honesty. You know, he didn't use the these and thous in his conversation with God. He didn't paint a rosier picture than was there. He actually said, the people I'm in the midst of, my culture, the people I love, maybe he was talking about his brother and his sister, all the people he grew up with, my graduating class, look where they're headed. Look what's broken about our world, God. Listen, I need you to hear me. I need to know why is our world so broken and so messed up. I need you to honestly listen to my honesty. If you want to be a prayer person, if you want to be a watchman on the wall, if you want to be somebody who meets with God and understands the wisdom of God for our day, you have to be somebody who maintains their honesty with God. You'd rather fake it at the water cooler at work. You'd rather fake it everywhere else in your life and decide to be very, very sincere and honest with God. This takes practice. Sometimes when I've gotten dishonest with my my own self, I, I realize that my heart, it's hard to realize what's actually in here. And sometimes when I can't quite figure it out, I write it out. I actually take my journal out and I write, what do I actually feel today? I'm a little depressed. Okay, why am I depressed? Well, I had this happen in traffic this week. This guy just didn't like me or whatever it is. I have lists of things that actually I've had to get honest with God. I am so good at lying to God that I've had to write down my honesties because otherwise they're not actually honest at all. And Habakkuk says, listen, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to speak candidly with you, God, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to be involved as a result. The second thing he does is he actually maintains patience. He says, I'm going to be still and I'm going to listen to the God who is still. I'm going to sit on the wall and I'm going to watch for how he answers. I'm going to look for the answers to prayer and I'm going to watch until they come. I don't know how long this will take, but I'm going to realize that I'm not the solution. And so I'm going to honestly put the problem out there and then I'm going to patiently wait for the reply. Some of those replies, I think, came quicker and in unexpected ways for a backup, but eventually they slowed down and he's left waiting, looking for God's final word. One third comment on Habakkuk, he maintained joy. It might not sound like this, but, you know, you can't fight without joy. It's really true. You can get depressed without joy. You can get downhearted and just lose your way in life altogether without joy. But what you can't do is fight back. And what Habakkuk has in this passage is a tremendous fighting spirit. It requires a fighting heart in order to be a prayer person. It's not a wimpy, it's not a wimpy calling. It's not something that's for the faint of heart. God is actually saying, listen, you who are a prayer warrior, don't let me sleep. You don't sleep and you don't let me sleep. 
because I need people who are strong and who are going to bring their honest hearts before me. And you might be wrong, and I'll tell you you're wrong when you are, but I'll love you for bringing it to me. That's the God of the universe speaking. So by all means, be honest and make sure you maintain patience, but also maintain joy. Look at how Habakkuk ends his book. Listen to this. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. This is how Habakkuk responds to God. He's going, I am actually frightened. My body is shaking. I can't handle this. Decay crept into my bones and my legs were trembled. This isn't because of all the bad things. This is because of the one good person in the situation speaking his mind. Habakkuk says, I'm not ready for this God. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. There will be a day when God will get back at Babylon too. And it does happen, by the way. That's actually true. God is just, and he actually brings the Babylonian culture to its natural end as they don't listen to him any better than the Israelites did. Though the fig tree does not, does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the cells, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I will be joyful in my, God my Savior, and I will sit and I will wait. I was reading... I was listening, rather, to a podcast a few weeks ago, and the, the author was telling me these interesting facts. It's free for anybody who would want to turn there. But he revealed that in about 1950, the average home in America was 900 square feet. That's a pretty small house, right? And the average home in the 21st century, guess, guess how big it is? 2,300 square feet. The average home being built right now. We've expanded by over twice. We've got big houses. What's interesting is in it was about three point some odd decimal uh, the, the people that lived in those 900 square foot houses, and now we're down to about 2.3. So we have 2,300 square feet with fewer people living in them. And the average house in America can't get all of the cars that would fit in the garage in the garage because the stuff has overwhelmed the house and has moved into the garage. That's us, right? And now there's, and, and I, I, I tread cautiously. I knew this sermon was going to be potentially offensive, so I tread cautiously. But now there are these cable TV shows, and there's one that is uh, kind of more popular than all the others of its sort. It's called Storage Wars. Have you ever noticed that? What's that about? It's people who rent space because their house has gotten too small for all their stuff, even though their house is twice as big as their house would have been 60 years ago, and there's fewer people living in their house, and they have a garage that they filled up. So now they rent storage spaces, and then they decide, well, we can't actually pan our storage spaces. We're just going to forget about all that, and they're going to auction off the stuff that was in the storage space. We have a really interesting culture, wouldn't you agree? When we expand our space at that rate, and we expand our stuff at that rate, When Habakkuk's talking about those five things, it's a little close to our heart. When he's talking about homes that are bigger and provide more security, when he's talking about finances that are getting accumulated, when he's talking about fun and and, and justice that's kind of built to make sure that these people have what they need and keep getting more of it until they have more than they need. In the middle of that, he says, that becomes an idol. And you create things that you worship instead of worshiping the Creator God. And he says, I'm sitting here in the stillness of God's inner chamber and I'm hearing his voice. And what he's saying to me is that we are a broken society because we are accumulating all this stuff. We're isolating ourselves away from everybody else in our life. And we are hiding from the people who maybe would make all the difference as we expand our stuff and our space and move away from those people and the God who loves us. 
This is a picture of Habakkuk's culture. I find it extremely convicting. I read recently that the 21st century, according to psychologists, might be as they look back over the, and there's no way to really know this, but it's the opinion of some psychologists and and academics that the world that we live in is the loneliest world. We're in the loneliest culture in the civilized West of any culture ever. We have bigger houses. We have more stuff. We've, we've built our individual security to the point where it's a juggernaut. And we're worried about our finances, yes, but we have more than the rest of the world. And we're sitting in the midst of all of this great wonder, and yet we're conflicted and di- experiencing difficulty, and especially we're experiencing loneliness. And God is saying, I'm sitting in my holy temple. I'm wishing that I could meet with you. I just wish you would come honestly before me in prayer and bring truthfully what's on your heart. Just don't lie about it. If you're depressed, if you're angry, if you're bitter, just bring it, come as you are, because I want to talk to you for who you are. Jesus used this word, and nobody dared use it. Nobody else in the history of the New Testament and nobody in Jesus' time that we know of used this word the way he did. He invented this word. It was used in a different way. And the word was hypocrites. He used it in Matthew chapter 6. He said, if you, if, when you pray, don't pray like a hypocrites. What do you think that word means? You can translate it without a Greek dictionary, right? Don't be a hypocrite. And the word in his time meant don't be an actor. Don't be like something you're not. Be who you are, Jesus said. And so when you pray, and then he uttered these words that are maybe the most important words in prayer that have ever been uttered. He gave these disciples this way to pray that said, listen, open up to what God is all about in your life. Bring to him the actual concerns. Don't hide any piece of your life. We sing this song in the second service that says, nothing is hidden before God. I love that line because when we have nothing hidden in our lives, when we put it all in front of him, we are no longer actors and God can deal with us as we are right? Prayer is the place where God wants to do it. Prayer is not just the place where God wants to change the world around us. Prayer is the place that God wants to change us. And we must be honest and we must be patient and we must be people of joy who take joy in what God is actually doing, even when it feels conflicting and say, you know what, God, you're still on the throne and I'm going to follow you and I'm going to walk through this and I'm going to experience you and I'm going to sit on the wall and I'm going to watch you work and I'm going to decide to be a person who's just only because of my faith. I'm going to believe in what you do and I'm going to watch you experience life in the midst of all these people, and I'm going to be a person who's anything other than a hypocrite, anything other than an actor. The Bible is all about faith. The Bible is all about faith. Let me just show you a few scriptures that will close this message out that are all about faith. In Genesis 15:6, in one of the great passages in the Old Testament, God starts this whole conversation by saying, Abram, your faith, your belief is going to be the thing that I credit to you as righteousness. You've heard that line over and over. Last week we talked about an Augustinian monk who read that same line in Galatians. Paul quotes it, and he said, this is the change agent for my faith. I realize that I have to put it all on the life of Jesus. I have to put it all at the cross. I have to experience everything with Jesus. And I have to leave behind all of my acting and my effort and my striving, all of that stuff that I thought would get me to this relationship with God, I have to leave it all behind. Paul wrote this kind of reflecting on what faith means in Habakkuk and in Genesis. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What does it mean to walk with God? 
Old New Testament. Very beginning, God talking with Abraham. The middle part of the Old Testament, God talking with a a prophet in the most difficult moment potentially in his life. God working with Jesus and Jesus saying, listen, the way to know the Father is through me. You must believe in me. There is no other way to God. Paul writing, the only way to understand this gospel is that you believe it first, that you buy it with your heart, that it moves from here to here, and you get in the middle of this, and you you got to get rid of all of that other acting stuff that you want to do. Get rid of the hypocrisy, get honest with God, and start to believe. You know, it's really easy to fake things in an email. It's easy to fake stuff in a text. But when you're sitting there looking at a human being, they know whether you love them or not, right? Your wife, your husband, they know whether you actually care or not. And when we pray, we sit face to face with the God of the universe. And Jesus says, listen, you need to talk to him like he's somebody very close to you. In fact, he opens the Lord's Prayer right after using that word Hippocrates. And I'll just end the sermon with quoting the line. He says, speak to him this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't leave out any parts, says Jesus. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Notice he puts sin fifth on the list. I always love this part. The fact that sin is, the le- is, is, is one of the least things to think about. Instead, focus on God. He's the Father. His will is huge. Uh, let's make sure he's hallowed in our lives. And then let's make sure we're provided for. And then God says, please ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The way to not be a hypocrite is to actually go to the Lord in prayer and bring who you are to that conversation. Maintain your patience and your joy. Maintain your walk with him and say, God, I need you to change me. I need you to change our world. Let's just get honest, you and me, because we live in a world with a lot of stuff, and it lies to us all the time about what our lifestyle should be. And God says, I want the real you. I love you for who you are, not all of these other things. Join me in prayer.